This show contains strong language. Listener discretion is advised. Steve was a walk-on at Michigan State, meaning he had to prove himself in tryouts. Michigan State's philosophy in football was to take a student-athlete and turn him into an animal. So I was labeled the rabbit. Send me the rabbit, they used to scream. Steve was fast, but small. At 5'10 and about 155 pounds, he was one of the smallest guys on the team. But being the rabbit wasn't just about speed. It was about being prey for the bigger players, being expendable. And uh, I would proceed to get butchered up and tackled and uh, whatever drill they wanted me, I was nothing but a tackling dummy. He'd come to his dorm room every day after practice, turn off the lights, and put a wet towel on his forehead. He'd stay like that for hours, half-conscious with a splitting headache. Steve figured this was just the price he'd have to pay to be a star. And based on the stories I'd been hearing, all that pain seemed to pay off. When Michigan State played USC, he tackled O.J. Simpson in the open field. And I thought to myself, I'd be proud as a peacock if I tackled O.J. Simpson in the open field. He was in the college football hall of fame for Michigan, Detroit. And he caught a touchdown, scored, and they won the national championship game. That's Steve Cole for you. But for Steve, there was another story he savored from his time at Michigan State. He had cut out every newspaper clipping he could get his hands on about it and stored them in a leather portfolio he carried with him. It was the moment when he stopped being the rabbit and finally got the attention he knew he deserved. October 25th, 1969. The Michigan State Spartans are playing the Iowa Hawkeyes on their turf, and the stadium is packed. It's the final quarter. Iowa is in the lead by two points. The Spartans need a touchdown with 63 yards to go. The quarterback sees Steve in the distance. A near impossible pass, a near impossible catch. But Steve is the rabbit. He runs deep, keeps his eye on the ball, and in a scene made for the movies, he catches it. He scores his first touchdown for the Spartans, a 63-yard completion. The stadium erupted for Steve Coe, and Steve Coe felt electric. All those other stories that Steve's friends tell about him, they aren't true. Steve Coe never tackled O.J. Simpson. O.J. graduated USC before Steve even started playing at Michigan State. He never scored a game-winning touchdown in the national championship. And he was never inducted into the College Football Hall of Fame. But this 63-yard pass play really did happen. And it made people see something special in Steve. His coach was quoted in the papers saying Steve had the best moves on the team. Local journalists were calling him the fastest man on the squad. This proved, to himself and his family, he wasn't just going to avoid the coal mines. He was bound for something spectacular. Michigan wound up losing that game, even with Steve's big catch. But still, in that moment, 
He was a star. And that taste of greatness, of being exceptional, impossible, he'd chase that feeling for the rest of his life. There's not a fucking chance in hell my story ain't gonna work for a series. Just starting off with a football. And football would eventually lead Steve to the belly of the drug world. And down there waiting for him were Fred and Betty. I'm Leah Carroll, and from something else, this is Hemingway's Picasso. Chapter 2, Bisquick. So now I've become obsessed with all these football teams from the 70s, trying to figure out how this football player turned into a drug smuggler. Right out of Michigan State in 1972, Steve joined the Denver Broncos. I signed with the Denver Broncos because that's what the coaches told me I would have my best chance to play. But he never played a regular season game with the Broncos. After less than a year, he bounced to the Toronto Argonauts. I signed a contract to play the last four games, I believe it was, for uh, $7,000, I think. They don't pay pro football players anything back then. $7,000 doesn't sound great, but that's the equivalent of around $40,000 today. It's not blockbuster money, but it's a livable wage. I think it's fair to say livable wasn't what Steve was aiming for. In Toronto, he'd been crashing with the team's other wide receiver, Eric Allen. Eric told Steve the Argonauts had money, and they could afford to put Steve up somewhere nice. They housed him in a five-star hotel, the Royal York. The Royal York was all the glitz and glamour Steve dreamed his football career would be. It had a shimmering pool, giant chandeliers. It was the kind of place where the staff wore tuxes with tails. I used to have them pick up the Murphy bed and put in a uh, table that's uh, seated about 10 people. Steve invited all his teammates back to his fancy room for a feast. And uh, they would proceed to order everything on the menu, anything that came in a silver tray or champagne buckets, all Steve cared about was impressing his teammates and having a good time. And as you can probably guess, this came back to bite him in the ass. I'm in there collecting my final paycheck and uh, the guy that was a head of the finance for the Argonauts, he looked over me and says, I think you're a smartass, don't you, Carl? I go, no, 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 no smartass. So, just in case you didn't catch that, Steve just got called a smartass by the finance guy at Toronto. I think you can see where this is going. He said, uh, you see your bill here at the Royal York? Yeah, I looked at the bill and it was 14500 some dollars, which was $7,000 more than I was making. I looked at the guy and I go, does this mean I'm not going to be invited back? 
he wasn't. So at 23 years old, Steve went back home to Michigan to live with his parents. Steve got a job as a substitute gym teacher. For a different kind of guy, it might have been a chance to start over, have a steady paycheck and save up for a mortgage, a regular life. But this life, living at home with his parents, his part-time job, it was decidedly unspectacular. Steve's parents were on the brink of divorce, so he'd find any excuse to stay away from their fighting. And he spent as much time as he could with some old high school buddies. I would drink beer with them till 2, 3 o'clock in the morning and then come home and wait for a call to go substitute school teach. These guys met in friends' basements and talked politics for hours. And it was always an interesting mix of people. Some were hippie types. A couple of them were also part of the White Panthers, an anti-racist collective of white allies that supported the Black Panthers. I enjoyed hanging in their company and listening to their political rants and raves about Nixon and the White House and all the radical, all the radicalisms of the day. Steve felt like he was on the cutting edge of political discourse, and he loved it. It was the perfect escape from his parents' home. But it was more than that. One of these hangs would become a turning point for him, a moment that would provide him with one of his favorite stories, a seminal work of the Steve Coe canon. This particular night, uh, it was February, I believe, February 73, my mother was on me about my dad and what a no-good son of a bitch I was and uh, what was I going to do with my life and that whole routine. So I drive out in a blinding snowstorm to uh, 8 Mile Woodward Avenue in Detroit. Steve met up with his buddies at an address they'd given him. And I walked through the uh, door and Help myself to Heineken, and all these boys are looking, and they were snorting cocaine at the time. When he got there, all his buddies seemed pissed. They'd run out of coke and didn't have enough cash to keep the party going. So they were trying to figure out a way to trick the dealers into lowering the price. They had told them that uh, they had to have their official tester test out the cocaine. They all look at each other and says... Cole, you're the official tester. The spotlight was on Steve. His buddy gave him some direction. He said, listen, all you got to do is go back there, do two lines of cocaine, beat them back a little bit, tell them it's inferior quality so that we can have enough money to purchase this stuff. Steve's friends brought him to sit down at a big round table in the other room. There was an empty tube from a big pen in front of him. It was like a sacrament, almost a religious sacrament with these guys starting coke. They would have a turn-of-the-century drugstore mirror to have the coke cut out on that and uh, then snort it through the clear big pen. According to Steve, the dealers were some Mexican guys from a cartel that was active in Michigan, and they were armed to the teeth. Some of Steve's friends were connected to the Detroit mob. They were armed, too. 
he knew he would have to give the performance of a lifetime. I should mention, Steve's never done coke before. So I bend down and I take a long snort out of the first line and I sit back and I say nothing. Then I lean over and snort the other line and I say nothing. I just sit back, look up at the ceiling and I'm pondering and these guys are hunched over, leaning, waiting in great anticipation for my grade on this coat. So I look over at the Mexicans and I say, the shit is this quick. Steve once again had the whole place in the palm of his hand. But just like his big game at Michigan State, this big play didn't get the results he was hoping for. Because once Steve gave his verdict on the coke... My God, the shit hit the fans. The Mexicans pulled out their guns. My guys pulled out their guns. I get whisked out of the room. But Steve doesn't care. You can hear it in the tape, how he comes alive telling this story. He's so pleased with himself. I thought I did a strong performance. This shit looked like this quick. Steve would keep chasing this rush. The drugs he could take or leave, but having the spotlight on him, making the big play under pressure, that made Steve feel like a star, not just some regular Joe teaching gym class. If you look at the spines of Steve's cassette tapes, he's labeled each one carefully in capital letters. Three tapes are labeled Bisquick. It's the first word he says on his first tape. Let that sink in. He wanted it to be the title of his whole story. Of all the things he's done and all the things he'll do, this is one of the most important moments in Steve's life. In the summer of 73, Steve was playing for a minor league football team, the Flint Sabres, making $150 a game. But he stayed in touch with his Bisquick buddies, and sometimes they would ask for his help with smaller drug deals. One day, one of the more connected guys in the crew approached him with something a little bigger. We want you to come down and meet this Mexican guy. We want you to be uh, chief of security. Apparently, this Mexico connection was directly tied with a cartel out of Guadalajara, and they had tons of marijuana they couldn't offload. So I was to take this chemist down to Mexico, and he was going to set up a lab to convert the marijuana into hashish. So that went on the subject, how much will I be making? And they said, uh, uh, everything went right, I'd make $150,000 for a week's work, so... I said, uh, $150 playing semi-pro football versus $150,000 in Mexico. I'm in. And thus began Steve Coe's first foray into serious drug running. If he's ever going to sail through Cuban waters on a mission for Pablo Escobar or walk through piles of cash in the basement of a Castro government building, this would be a good start. Welcome to True Spies. 
the podcast that takes you deep inside the greatest secret missions of all time. Suddenly out of the dark, it's appeared Bin Laden. You'll meet the people who live life undercover. What do they know? What are their skills? And what would you do in their position? Vengeance felt good. Seeing these people pay for what they'd done felt righteous. True Spies from Spyscape Studios, wherever you get your podcasts. Have you ever felt like escaping to your own desert island? Jane Gaskin did exactly that, trading in the family home to begin a new life in the tropics. But she soon discovers that paradise has its secrets. I'm Alice Levine, and this is The Price of Paradise, the island dream that ends in kidnap, corruption, and murder. Wish you were here? Follow The Price of Paradise now, wherever you listen to podcasts. My dad, Kevin Carroll, was a truck driver at the Providence Journal, but he could have been writing for them if he'd had a college degree. He was a Vietnam vet, but he didn't romanticize it. When I asked him about the war, he'd just tell me it rained a lot. But that's not what his friends remember him for. My dad could charm a room with his stories, usually a bar room, kind of like Steve Coe. Everyone in the room would lean in, full of wonder, as he did the Kevin Carroll act. My dad died when I was 18, 14 years after my mother was killed. His friends put up a plaque at his local bar. It said, Kevin Carroll, a man's man. I hated that thing. That bar is where my dad would drink himself to death. And that's what his friends decided to memorialize. Sometimes, I feel like I'm the only person who got to know the real Kevin Carroll. The one who was scary smart and very broken. Which sounds a lot like Steve to me. That's why I wanted to meet Stevie Co., Steve's son. I wondered if he thought about his dad the way I think about mine. Plus, I figured if anyone knew the real story behind Fred and Betty, it would be Stevie. We wanted to make sure Stevie was comfortable with us visiting him in Huntington. He trusts very few people. One of those people is Nick Katz, his best friend. So we had to talk to Nick first. Nick had known Stevie since high school. They met through sports. Nick was always impressed by the kind of athlete Stevie was. He is so talented, it's unreal. Like, he's just, he's got that it factor. Throwing a football, catching a football, running, juking, playing basketball, playing baseball, playing hockey, skateboarding, rollerblading, like, whatever, BMX. He's just got it. But nothing captured Stevie's heart, like skateboarding. We'd skate all day. We'd take the bus to Miami Beach. We'd stick our skateboards in the sand. We'd steal beer from, like, the corner store and, like, hang out and get kicked out by the police, you know, after sundown. They skated around the skyscrapers of Brickell, the shady green streets of Coconut Grove, and the bright pastels of Little Haiti. The way Nick describes it, it was a charmed life, a charmed city that these kids made their own. Their Miami was so different from Steve Coe's Miami. 
the one of cocaine skylines, white suits, and high-speed boat chases. For Nick and Stevie, Miami was Neverland, and they were the Lost Boys. Stevie's now 31. He lives in Huntington Beach, California. Nick joined me and my producer, Pallavi, on our trip there. We figured Stevie would feel better having him around. As we were driving to Stevie's, I noticed that Huntington Beach is kind of like Miami. It's by the ocean, there are palm trees and wide roads, but it's much slower. It doesn't have the same pulsing heartbeat that Miami has. When we pulled up to Stevie's house, he was waiting for us right outside. What's up, Hey, what's going on? Stevie's living in a ranch house on a quiet street with a roommate. He takes us to the backyard. We got a bunch of fruit trees back there. That's a peach tree. That's a clementine tree. That's a pomegranate. <gasps> Avocados are coming in. There's scallions running around. Maybe a couple pot plants here or there. Um, yeah, it's not bad. For a Brooklyn girl, this house is paradise. Eventually, he brought us into his living room. Before we got there, he'd brought out a bunch of his dad's stuff, and it was spread across the coffee table. Of course, the first thing I looked for among the papers and photos was Fred and Betty. But they weren't there. Stevie wasn't comfortable sitting in one place while we asked him questions about his life. He said he preferred to keep moving. He'd hold his hands up to his chest and pace back and forth around the living room. Like he was trying to outmaneuver a ghost. Stevie showed me his dad's wallet. It was filled with driver's licenses from half a dozen states. They all had Steve Coe's name and photo on them. So my dad had different wallets for different states. Iowa or Delaware. You'll probably find like six different IDs in here. He always believed firmly when he was running and doing things, always have an ID for the certain state that you're in. He showed us some photos, and right away, he and Nick started down memory lane. This is Steven's house. How I remember it, that's his kitchen. It's in Kendall, a nice upper-middle-class neighborhood. But this house, it wasn't your classic suburban home surrounded by a white picket fence. Stevie showed us a picture of the yard. It was surrounded by a high, thick wall. This wall was like all cinder block and concrete filled around the house. Yeah, definitely not a white picket fence. It looked kind of like a fortress. They had big dreams for the house. They built sunroofs everywhere and built the pool, that all-tile pool. Steve bought the house as a family home. But it was always meant to serve a secondary function. It was supposed to be a safe haven for gangsters, pretty much. Stevie grew up fast. He was in middle school when he started partying and experimenting with drugs. I started growing pot when I was like 11, 12 years old. I stole my dad's key uh, to his motorhome and I literally set up this grow room in my dad's fucking motorhome, pulling power. Stevie's youthful foray into the weed business was doing well enough to make some money, and he got away with it for nearly a month. But his father pulled him aside one day. He was like, son, because he was like, I was thinking of shit one day. <laughs> then I looked to my right, and 
see an extension cord going, <laughs> going from the socket out my window. <laughs> Stevie needed electricity for his grow room, so he used an outlet from his dad's bathroom. I have lost all fucking control. <laughs> He's just such a, such a, just like, so this is the king in his castle, huh? <laughs> I'm laughing, but Steve was pissed. And Stevie couldn't figure out why. At this point, Steve had built a huge marijuana grow room underneath the house. Stevie's little operation was nothing in comparison. It was like this dresser thing that I, like, put into the motorhome. I, like, converted it to a little grow room that wasn't even going to harvest that much anyways. Like, my dad's, like, growing, like, thousands of pounds of weed. and. But Steve explained to his son. He's like, I am being watched everywhere right now. <laughs> like, you fucking idiot. Like, like, I have so much to deal with. Like, Steve wasn't mad because his preteen son was growing and selling weed. He's mad because he knew the feds were watching the house. And Stevie's little business could mean big trouble for him. I get it. If Steve goes down, then the whole family will suffer. But you think he'd be a bit more concerned about his kid getting into the drug game so early. Steve wound up turning Stevie into his mom. Stevie felt so betrayed. And I was like, Dad! I, I mean, I thought you'd be proud of my little, you tell me to do homework, that's my project. I'm freaking making it happen here. Obviously, I found Stevie's telling of this story pretty funny. And I can't help it. He has his father's sense of humor and rhythm. But listening back, I just feel sad. All Stevie wanted was for his dad to be proud of him. And this was how he thought he could do it. And even then, he was wrong. I came to Huntington to visit Stevie in order to learn about Fred and Betty. I figured Stevie would show me the piece and show me whatever proof makes him feel so sure it's real. But watching him react to these pictures and tell these stories, I just realized how much of Steve, the father, still lives inside Stevie, the son. And I'm wondering if this whole story is just built on faith. On Stevie's coffee table in Huntington, there was a photo of his dad on the beach with a $20 bill tucked in the bottom right corner of the frame. I asked about it. What's the 20? That was my first paycheck for counting 100 grand after I got out of class in second grade. Yeah. <laughs> And I've kept it the, my whole life. Apparently, Steve had gone to New York for a job. And then he came back with just duffel bags full of ones, fives, tens, twenties, a few hundreds. And he was like, here, sit down. Let's start counting some money. I remember asking him, like, why are you showing me all this? I was very young at the time. So great. But yeah, it was second, third grade, you know? And he's just, he's like, so you know, you know? Simple. So I just sat down, and while people are playing with Legos, I'm playing with blocks of fucking cash. I can't help but think about what we pass down to our children. I'm a mom now. My daughter's a toddler. And I obsess over what kind of genetic trauma she might inherit from me. 
That's why I asked Stevie if he ever had kids. Would he ever let them count cash from a deal? Uh, yeah, I'd have him count some cash for me. What's the fucking problem with that? <laughs> I wouldn't, uh... But then he paused, and he gave me another answer. I wouldn't put, I don't think, my family through, like, a lot of things that I've been through. It's a small moment of honest reflection. But it's there. Polyvy and I rode with Nick back to the hotel, and I asked him why Stevie lives in Huntington. I have no fucking idea, you know? I know for a fact that if it was up to him, he would live back in Miami, but Miami's where his demons are. To both Steve and Stevie, Miami was this idea of home at the end of their odysseys. For Steve, it was the site of his glory days. But for Stevie... It's where he was with his family, living in that big house with a concrete fence. That was his normal. And it's where his father was still around to talk to him. But Nick says the problem is that Stevie won't stop listening to his dad's voice. I've heard him say before to me, you know, that this whole thing is all about, like, completing the mission. Come on, Stevie, get it done. Like, there is this person, his father, speaking to him from the beyond um, and compelling him to get this across the finish line. Steve's only 31 years old. He looks at himself like he's, like, an over-the-hill, like, ex-con or something. Steve's only been dead for three years, and Stevie's still grieving. And I think this all-consuming mission to sell Fred and Betty brings a little bit of Steve back to life. The piece was in the apartment somewhere. I still haven't seen it, but it's looming over all of us like a ghost. It's 1973. Steve was just 24 years old. He was, at best, a small-time criminal with a few connections higher up in Detroit. This Mexico run was his first international job. The first taste he'd get at being a real gangster. It was late July, early August, the best of my recollection. I have four days to get down to Guadalajara from Lansing, Michigan. Remember... Steve's job was to drive a chemist down to Mexico. The guy's name was George Spagnolo. George was supposed to convert pounds of young marijuana into hashish. They cut down through the states vertically, from Michigan all the way to Texas. But the closer they got to the Mexico border, the more worried George became. So there I am, two days into the trip. We only got two more days to get down to Guadalajara. This guy's getting cold feet and being a coward. George didn't seem to have that criminal life in his bones. And it drove Steve nuts. He's going on and on. These guys are going to kill me. They're going to keep me here. They're going to hold me hostage. And I just told him, I said, let me tell you something, pal. You signed on for this shit. And I got to convince him to continue so I can complete my mission and... uh, Knocked down my $150,000. 
Steve wasn't going to let George get in the way of his big break and his 150K. He calmed George down enough that they finally got to their destination, a few hours outside of Guadalajara. And uh, this guy gets out and pounds on these iron steel doors. They were 20 feet high. The doors opened. As Steve walked in, he noticed the courtyard up front was covered in painted tile. In the middle of the courtyard, there was a well and a fountain. It was beautiful. Steve met up with an American contact, a guy named Carl Shakarian. He was waiting for them. Carl pulls me aside and says, uh, listen, Steve, just uh, don't say a word. Keep your mouth shut. That night, Steve said he's told to leave behind the car, choose a donkey, and ride it into the mountains with Carl. He wasn't given any more instruction than that. But you know Steve. He was game. A storm rolled in overhead. Lightning clapped. lit up my face, and then a huge clap hit. This lightning turned itself into a ball of, like, red-hot white fire and rolled down. It must have been 25 feet in diameter, rolling straight down the hill, taking out all the vegetation in its path. And right before the uh, stream, it just flamed out. And uh, I just sat in amazement. at that site, and it was like God was talking to me. There's a religious element to Steve's stories, like he's speaking to a congregation. And moments like his impossible catch or bisquick, they're like his scriptures. When I visited Stevie, he showed me his dad's Bible, and it was worn out and heavily annotated. Maybe some of his storytelling skills did come straight from the good book. I didn't expect Steve to be a spiritual man, but Steve Coe is nothing if not full of surprises. Back to the mountains. The night was pitch black. Steve could barely see anything. He's just trusting the donkeys to know where they're going. And as we get around the uh, big bend, start down, down the path, that's when the gunfire ripped out. Steve didn't know where it was coming from or who was firing or why. All he knew is he had to get out of there. My heart's beating a million miles an hour. The guys from the Detroit Mafia also rode down the mountainside with their donkeys. Carl Shakarian was sitting next to Steve. The gunfire was happening 25 yards above their heads. So we're sitting there and nobody's saying a word. And uh, finally Shakarian says, what do you think, Carl? What do you think? And I told him, I said... I don't think that I'm getting back on that path until daylight. That's what the fuck I think. And that's exactly what I did. Apparently, a couple of the guys Steve was with had diarrhea. I'll spare you the details, but basically, Steve talks at length about how these guys found some leaves that turned out to be poison ivy to wipe their asses with. So, not only did they get Montezuma's revenge, but, uh... They had swollen balls, swollen testicles, swollen fingers, swollen thighs. I thought Carl was going to shoot himself in the head. So this is the kind of story Steve is famous for telling at so many bars. 
And maybe it doesn't matter if it's really true that these guys wipe their asses with poison ivy. But I think it does. Because Stevie takes his father at his word. That's why he believes, without a doubt, that Fred and Betty is a real Picasso. But I'm not Stevie. I can't run on faith. I want to know what's real. And if Steve was polishing up his stories with a bit of pizzazz, how am I supposed to separate that little extra something from the truth? Steve left Mexico a couple of days after the donkey incident. He took a plane from Guadalajara to Dallas, another from Dallas to Detroit, and then from Detroit to Lansing, Michigan. I rolled up into Lansing. Uh, I had my uh, silver ring that I bought and my little Mexican fedora that I wore, and I said, what an odyssey that was. And that was... Uh, Basically, the beginning of the end of my life as I knew it. These fleeting moments of regret, these are the moments that stick with me. Because I'm walking down Michigan Boulevard with a Mexican fedora on and just going, what the fuck did I just do? And Lord Jesus, thank God I'm back and I don't ever want to do that bullshit ever again in my life. Lord Jesus, forgive me for all my follies. Back with his family in Dearborn, Steve tried to put Mexico behind him. He got back into football. He was really only playing a few scrimmages. But he caught the eye of a scout. And not just any scout. The chief scout for the Detroit Lions. The Lions asked Steve to play a couple of practices with them, and if it worked out, maybe he'd get a spot on the team. It's the culmination of all his football dreams playing for the team he grew up watching. Maybe he'd get another chance at this after all. All the stars seemed to be in line, and God seemed to have favor with me. During one scrimmage, he looked up to the stands and saw a couple of familiar faces. Everybody else was clapping uh, when I caught the ball because I made a nice catch. And uh, I guess maybe that's where they stuck out because they were just sitting up at the top railing there. And uh, These guys had approached Steve a few times before. They asked him to meet up and were curious about his connections in Mexico. Steve suspected they were FBI. They caught my eye and I knew it came flooding back to me, the whole Mexico incident, that uh, there's a possibility that I could be arrested here at this uh, time of my biggest accomplishment. A couple days passed. Steve was sitting in the dining hall with the other players. Just enough guys entering into the chow hall uh, where we got our food. And... Uh, Two guys uh, come out and are approaching me in suits and ties. They approached him with cuffs. uh, Steve Coe, come with us, and uh, took me uh, around a little bit out of sight and arrested me on the spot, threw me in the back of the sedan, and I knew right then and there that that would spread like wildfire that I got arrested. 
to the feds. This Mexico run wasn't just a passing phase. A turn in the spectacular life that Steve was ready to leave behind. It was just drug running, and they nailed him for it. For most, an arrest might be a dead end. But for Steve, this arrest might move him one step up in the world. And one step closer to Fred and Betty. Next time on Hemingway's Picasso. My mom was watching the TV and uh, sure enough, my name came up. Steve Cole, at large. We started losing money a lot sooner than me and my brother actually recognized it. My dad didn't know anything about art. He was a cowboy. He was just crazy. And uh, I said, fuck it, I'm gonna... I'm going to break into this son of a bitch. This show is hosted and reported by me, Leah Carroll. Senior producer is Pallavi Kotomasu. Associate producer is India Witkin. Editor is Lizzie Jacobs. Original music by Emma Palm. Audio engineer is Sam Baer. Fact checker is Erica Gaida. Development producer is Grant Irving. In association with Vespucci Group, based on a story by Joe Flood... Executive producers are Lizzie Jacobs, Tom Koenig, Steve Ackerman, Johnny Galvin, Daniel Turkin, and Nick Katz. <laughs>